May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This Epiphany story goes way back. As we tell the story of the wise men traveling from afar to greet the infant Jesus, we trace their roots back another 600 years to Isaiah's prophecy for Jerusalem. The passage we hear from Isaiah foretells a prosperous city to a people in exile. The Jews are in exile in Babylon. They have just returned to Jerusalem around 580 B.C. They recall a desecrated city laid in ruins, and they read this Isaiah text as they return to their ruined city, and indeed as they waited in exile to return to the city. Babylon holds Israel's leaders for generations in what we, what we today know as Iran and Iraq. And they certainly leave their oral history perhaps even their texts behind when they return to Jerusalem. So it is that Isaiah's promise sounds now like a praise song for a new day. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has shone upon you. To a people used to slavery and devastation, these words promise joy inconceivable. If you find yourself in a season of darkness, perhaps from loneliness or illness or financial distress or trouble at work, then you know what these words would mean. To a beaten down people, it is time for their light to shine because it has been in them all along. It comes from God and it lives in you and in me just the same. These words sing to us as well. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of God has risen upon you. The song resonates now as it did then too. The people we call wise men from the east likely came from that same Babylon because that was the seat of astrological study in those days. Walter Brueggemann concludes that the wise men may even have read Isaiah's prophecy Because it was in the water, it was a story people were telling. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And they may even have seen themselves in it. That's what leads them to Jerusalem now. That text and the promise of a star, looking for the light of God to shine in a dark and dreary world. They embark now on this extraordinary journey. They're likely advisors to powerful rulers, and the trek is hundreds of miles requiring a caravan of people and animals and food and support. This would likely cost a fortune. It wasn't just three guys on camels going through the moonlight. You know, it was actually lots of people. That's how many people it would take to get across the desert. Even more ludicrous, a conquering country sends emissaries to worship a king among former slaves. But they're off by nine miles. Jerusalem does not house the child. When they hit town, they go looking for this king in the likeliest of places. Where would you go to find a king? I don't know, maybe the palace. That's where kings live. But what do they meet there? Herod, who holds on to power with a tyrant's grip. This is not the king they seek. 
He is nothing more than Rome's puppet, charged with suppressing tax revolts and religious uprisings. But if anything goes wrong, Rome will crush him and all of Jerusalem like a bug, as they will in 70 years. So he rules out of fear. He sees himself as the powers that be, but really he's the powers that have been. And that's why he's so terrified to hear news of another king. And if you think about it, the wise men are naive to think that Herod will take kindly to the news. Hello, glorious and powerful king. There's another one. <laughs> How's that going to go? You know? Indeed, he is very keen to find this child Jesus. He calls the Sanhedrin together, that great gathering of scribes and, and priests and, and leaders among the religious people, showing the incredible danger of aligning God with any one ruler or political party. And they do a high-pressure Bible study, these Sanhedrin people do. I imagine them doing a control-F word search. They're kind of desperate, so they start looking for, a, I don't know, ruler, king, Bethlehem. And this is what they come up with. You have the wrong passage, they tell him. The wise men are basing their, their trek on Isaiah chapter 60, which brings them to Jerusalem. But look at Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Indeed, the wise men are off by nine miles. And that's a world of difference, the nine miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And so they go across those nine miles, and they see just how different it is from the palace in the intrigue to the backwater town that we know as Bethlehem. Just think of the radical inversion of events taking place here. These are wealthy intellectuals from the land that used to capture people from Jerusalem. Somebody paid for them and their whole entourage to make this trip. They bring invaluable gifts intended to mark a king. They go to the palace and get turned around, and they find themselves in a town that nobody knew about. Bethlehem, kneeling before a teen mother, an infant, and a scared father. Because just after this text, they will get a dream to sneak back the back way, not to go back to Herod. And Joseph will get a dream to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt, where they will escape the brutal slaughter that Herod rains down on all the infants of Bethlehem because he's so terrified that there might be another king. And here we see that the gospel good news holds power to turn and, ca- and terrify kings. Jesus does not get crucified for being nice. He does not get an honorary doctorate for being a moral exemplar. He promises nothing less than the scandal of grace. Scott Hosey writes, Matthew's giving a gospel sneak preview. The Christ child who attracted these odd magi to his cradle will later have the same magnetic effect on Samaritan adulterers, immoral prostitutes, greasy tax collectors on the take, despised Roman soldiers, and ostracized lepers. Indeed, we find a strange joy in this story. An economically limited toddler in modest surroundings, lying in a teen mother's arms, writes Shelley Copeland. To the intellectually perceptive, this scene was not a scholar's formula for future success. Yet, by grace, the Magi had the faith to experience unbridled joy. 
So what joy are you hungry for? What clarity do you seek? In the quiet chambers of your heart, what good news might God dare to announce on your life this day? Can you imagine the courage to seek that, to find an epiphany, an aha moment even today? I leave you with the story of light shining in the darkness, which is really what epiphany is, light shining in the darkness. It comes from the incredible Kenyan woman, Wangari Maathai, who stared down a dictator and inspired African people to plant tens of millions of trees over the course of decades. So it's not a bedtime story. It is a revolutionary parable. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful forest. And the trees were so strong and tall, they stretched into the sky as far as you could see. And there, flying through the crystal clear air, were birds soaring through the clouds and diving down through the branches where they would find cats and lions and antelope and gazelle and elephants prowling through the forest. It was a beautiful forest, though not a perfect one. And over time, it was cut and slashed and burned to a tiny remnant of what was. And even there, gathered by the lake, the animals gathered and they saw smokes on the horizon and sparks in the air because this forest that they loved was burning. Now the elephants could have sucked water up into their trunks and sprayed it onto the flames. And the other animals could have dug trenches to prevent the spread and the monkeys could have thrown dirt on the fire. But nobody did. They stood there doing nothing, preparing to watch their home burn. All that is except for the hummingbird. Now how big is a hummingbird? How big is her beak? Can a hummingbird put out a forest fire? And yet she dipped her beak in the, in the water and she flew over to the fire and she dropped it onto the flames. Tss, the fire got bigger. And she dipped back her beak and she flew back again and she's flying back and forth and back and forth and the animals are standing at the lake saying, you stupid hummingbird. You're too weak to put out this fire. Your wings are too small. Your beak is too little. You'll hurt yourself. You should just give up now like the rest of us. And without missing a beat, flying back and flying back and forth, she whispers into the ear of Grandma Elephant. Now, Grandma's a storyteller, and she likes the dreamers of dreams and the visions. And she says, all right, I'll help you out. And she fills up her old trunk with water. She lumbers over to the fire, and she sprays it. Now, Grandma's got a heart condition, so she needs supervision. So her family and friends start walking with her. They start filling up their trunks. Pretty soon, you've got all the elephants on the west side of the fire blowing water on the flames. Still, the fire grows, and the hummingbird doesn't miss a beat. She's back and forth, and she's back and forth. She whispers into the ear of Grandma Lion. Tries to get eaten. Okay, that's a no. She goes to Grandpa Lion. Now, Grandpa's got a hip condition. So he starts digging trenches on the east side of the fire. Pretty soon, his whole family's digging trenches on that side of the fire, too. And still, the forest grows. So she goes to the impala and the antelope and the gazelles and the deer. And she says, hey, you know, we're putting out the forest fire. Everyone's working together. Do you guys want help? There are lions. No. So she goes to the teenagers. And they're all on their phones completely ignoring her. 
So she goes on social media, on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and suddenly the whole teenage Impala community is gathering to dig a trench on the south side of the forest. And the whole forest is working together. She gets the monkeys on the north side. Everyone's digging and blowing fire, blowing, blowing water on the fire, and still the forest burns to the ground. And they wonder, light shining in the darkness, what was all that for, you know? And they're walking through the burned stumps and stalks. A couple days later, the rain has kind of washed the smoke and the ash out of the air. Why do we do all that? And just then they noticed that these green sprouts were coming out of the ground. And they hadn't saved the trees, but they had saved the soil and the seeds that lived in the soil. And just before they lost what was so precious to them, they were able to save it. And the forest grew back taller and stronger and more beautiful than ever before. And when Mangari Matai tells this story, she pauses here. And she says, can a hummingbird put out a forest fire? Absolutely not. But the whole community can. And the only way you can spark a movement is to do everything you can where you are with what you have. And it might not be enough, but it is still what a morally wake person is called to do. And as I reflect on this epiphany story, this ludicrous story of of kings spending lavishly to cross the desert to see the infant king who lives not in the palace, but rather in the backwater town of Bethlehem, I see people searching for God's light to shine in the darkness. Because as we read in the Gospel of John, the darkness cannot, did not, would not, and has not yet put out the light. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of God has risen upon you. I've said these things to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.